Welcome to From All Points, the monthly podcast from the Episcopal Cafe exploring the themes of the life of faith. Welcome to From All Points, the monthly podcast from the Episcopal Cafe exploring the themes of the life of faith. I'm John, and joining me today is our usual panel. Hello, Amy. Hello. Hello, Cleola. Hello there. And hello, Charles. Hello, John, and everyone else. <laughs> today our conversation uh, is uh, about an article in America magazine which is the American magazine yeah America magazine which is the uh, the Jesuit review um, and the article is called we are living in an apocalypse and uh, it has some interesting ideas about apocalypse in the day of the Lord um, that I uh, I thought would be an interesting fodder in this time of coronavirus and uncertainty that we are living in Basically, the author, his name is David Dark, has two ideas that he wants to talk about from Scripture. And one is an idea called the Day of the Lord. Of course, we understand the Day of the Lord is like a big one, you know, like the eschaton, the coming of Jesus, the day when, when God ushers forth the new age and heaven and earth become one and, and the, the summation of creation is created. And, but the author says that there are also sort of uh, smaller days of the Lord that we experience whenever justice comes forward in our lives. And the other idea he's talking about is an apocalypse, and he, he speaks of it in terms of an apocalypse is an event that opens our eyes to the underlying reality of the world. And I would say that it opens our eyes to the underlying reality of the presence of evil in our world, but that God is at work in the midst of all that. So he uses these two ideas to talk about how this coronavirus is an apocalypse where our eyes are being opened to the fundamental um, injustices in our economic arrangements. Um, and for lots of people, those are not new things that are being revealed. But for lots of people, they are. But there's also an opportunity in the midst of this apocalypse when our eyes have now been open to all of the problems of our economic arrangements to bring about uh, a day of justice, the day of the Lord, to begin to correct some of those things. And so he's kind of opening it up as, again, you know, we're in this terrible situation, but God is offering us an opportunity, a transformation um, I think, you know, if we're willing to take it. So I just kind of wanted to uh, see if we could have a conversation about that. Charles, I wanted to start uh, with you because I know these are issues for the large, for the most part that you have been working on for a long time. Um, yeah. I don't think this is a situation that has opened your eyes in any way. No. Um, but also, you know, I, I don't know that, uh, I'm curious your thoughts on that and, and how do, as someone who's already been working this area of justice, how do we begin to work with others who now have had their eyes opened? If you had any thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I think the working with others part is just um, taking to the spot to show them where the, the accident happened or show them where the flower is growing. I mean, show them what's going on so they can see that and then and then hope and pray that they'll 
they'll do something with that. Um, you know, one of my hobby horses that I say a lot is we've always chosen Barabbas because we choose what we know rather than what the alternative might be. And so my household is trying to figure out where to buy groceries now and how where to shop now because Kroger's has just been falling down all the way. It's a major, you know, grocery store chain. They decided to cut what they were calling hero pay, $2 an hour for their employees, instead give them a $400 bonus as their CEO was getting $2.5 million bonus and raise. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to my kids' dismay, I always talk to people. And so when I talked to Kroger's employees, they were, I asked them if they were getting enough stuff and having opportunity to shop at the store. And they said, no, they're working so hard. By the time we get to go shop, everything has been gone. So, so, you know, telling those stories gets aside, like we just heard from Cleola, but, but I'm interested in what's the next part here. You know, when people talk, tell me, when I talk about police violence, they said, what can we do? You know, I'll tell them, pull your phone out and, and videotape it. Because when Julie and I have done that, guess what happens? Nothing happens. It de-escalates instantly. So just modeling it, just saying, this is what you can do. Um, well, we're sort of trained and have it bred that we can't do anything, you know. Um, and one of the one of the things that's really struck me is seeing the protesters at the state houses. Um, I trace their their actions back to the piss poor way we educate kids in our country. They don't have any understanding of civics or community involvement or compassion. Um, so. So having said all that and, and living through this, it's just pointing, 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 you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll, we'll get a bunch of St. Thomas's where he saw something and then went out and told what he saw over and again. Um, my, you know, St. Paul has two stories of, of his conversion. One is what St. Luke writes and one is what he wrote in, I think, Galatians. And he says he saw something, didn't know what it was, went and thought about it, and then he went out into the world. So I think education and and just pointing out that there are people willing to talk about these things and you you don't have to invent the wheel because you can join in where it's already happening. So it's it's a hard spot too to be in that, you know, constantly pointing out this stuff. If you you know, you're you're like the Debbie Downer of the of the party when you're always pointing out this stuff, but but it's been going on forever, and it's it's high time more people got involved. And you know, I thought when Donald Trump was elected, now finally we can we're going to do something. Nothing happened. This COVID thing is ex- revealing so much stuff. Hopefully, something will happen. But you know, we're going to rush back to what normal normal is. And to me, it's not really it's not the normal we should have. So. I guess if we're talking about apocalypse, I, I think apocalypse is maybe a, a car crash. Uh, and part two, that is eschatology, which is a seatbelt. So, you know, how are we going to, to get through the car crash? We take steps to to be above it or prepare ourselves for it rather than just a revelation of something. You're looking thoughtful, Amy. What are your thoughts? So I liked the author's idea of apocalypse as being those things that open our eyes, 
one of the things that I have found interesting throughout this COVID pandemic, you were asking me if my husband, David, is still working as a physician through this. And the answer is yes, even though he himself is in a high risk group, um, he has to, still been working as a physician in this to keep his office open because yes, the essential workers who make minimum wage are being taken advantage of, but also what people don't realize is the hospital system, the medical system in the United States right now is mostly funded by doctors who work on contract by how many work units they do, just like lawyers do. So my spouse, who is a very well-paid physician, yes, gets no sick time, gets no vacation time. He does get medical benefits. He has insurance and we have insurance through that. But if he did not work, number one, he would not get any paycheck. And number two, his office staff would not be able to get a paycheck because he would have to shut down his office. Mm -hmm. So he feels a great responsibility towards his staff and just to be able to bring home a paycheck. We could weather missing a couple or missing a few and we have in the past when something's happened and his health has not been good and he has not been able to go to work. So we're very careful about that in our household budget. But people don't even people. Most people don't realize that the bulk of the medical community, the bulk of the physicians are also contract workers. They don't have a huge safety net under them anymore, the way corporations have taken over the medical field. And it used to be that academic medicine, those who worked for a university system, it was not that way for a long time. But even now that has creeped into the academic system. And I know that because my brother-in-law and sister-in-law both work in the academic side of it. And it has now creeped over to that too. So it's, it's, it's a bigger gap even than I think most people realize. Most people see it with minimum wage workers, but they don't see how far up the food chain that idea of transactional work has gone to the point that there is no uh, grace in the system for a lot of our workers and not necessarily just the ones we would usually think of. It, it, just, it just shows how uh, nickel and dime we've, we've operated so many institutions in this country. And, and I know Clayola wants to talk, but I just want to say every major event, it seems, in American history, this country is caught with its pants down every single time. There's no looking forward. There's no preparation for it. I mean, think of, you know, what happened in Vietnam, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, you know, blowing up the main the Civil War. I mean, they were just not prepared for anything. Um, technology, crisis, you know, unionization. And there's always a cost being paid by someone to give, to gear up to, to fix it. And any fix that we have achieved or worked on is only specific to that time. So, you know, we're, we're operating institutionally in many ways for the last crisis or the last two or three generations, namely the public schools and how they're run and how the seasons go, um, how we do health insurance, how we do all sorts of, how we do church. You know, the, the Christian church, none of us should really be so wobbly setting up technology. We should have done this 20 years ago. Um, so 
that's just another observation I've had. I've had a novice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, go ahead, Clayola. Um. Well, a couple of. Uh, I agree with both of you. First of all, all the things that both of you said. One of the, a couple of the things that strike me about this article. One is the first one is that I have a little bit more um, exaggerated view of what an apocalypse is or what a the day of the Lord is, a, a particularly apocalypse, because for me, the way I the way I understand apocalypse is uh, that it is unavoidable. You don't have a personal choice about learning something new or trying a new behavior. You don't have a personal choice about having the scales fall from your eyes. It simply happens without you, without you controlling it, without you initiating it. Whereas he frames it as now we have an opportunity to know. And the truths that he points out, valid truths that he points out, have always been here. The inequities in our income system, the racism, sexism, uh, the problems with our medical care, problems with our political system have been here. They're not new. What this pandemic is doing is highlighting them and making them really glaringly obvious, but it is still possible in the system to hide your head. And we know a number of people who are doing that. And the question still remains, um, will we change? Because we can choose to, or we can choose to return to what was. I think we're skating on thinner and thinner ice as a society in terms of our ability to ignore those things, but I don't think it's a change that is forced upon us now um, in the way I see apocalypse happening. Uh, so his use of apocalypse is an interesting um, use of it. I would think of that the way he talks about it, it as more repentance than apocalyptic. I, I distinguish because because of that choice factor. So there's that. It, he raises very interesting questions, and they're questions that we're certainly hearing from lots of places right now. Uh, will we change? Will we see things newly? Will we quit being loyal to idols and begin to be loyal to our communities and the people around us and everyone who contributes? Um, so those are interesting questions, I think. The second thing is that that what I said about things have been this way for a long time, this is nothing new, it's simply obvious how it is now. Uh, there are many people who do not need revelation about the injustices in our society because they live them right. every day. And he speaks from the perspective of someone who's suddenly informed, and he himself does work in prisons. I, I don't think he is, uh, I, I will, I'm not saying he is entitled white person who doesn't know. I'm saying his perspective comes from the idea that you wouldn't know this already from your daily life, and there are many of us who already knew it. Uh, and, you know, the statistics, 
I, I don't remember the exact statistic, 45% of people, is it, who were one paycheck away from poverty before the pandemic? That's, those people are living that life. Um, the deaths of people of color, uh, those communities are living that life. The healthcare differences, people are, have been living those issues. That, so they don't need revelation about it. What they need is for this to change. I think what I'd like to see next is I would like some help on how to lead that change um, in a way that really works. And I don't think he quite goes there. Yeah, I think you guys are right that, uh, I mean, the, you know, the inequalities that are coming to the fore have, have, are not new, the racial disparities and how people experience life in our society are, are not new. The way we've moved work, taken away dignity uh, from work, pushed the rewards of work away from those who, who actually do the work to those who sort of organize and supervise it. On the other hand, you know, I... I think it's one thing to kind of know in the abstract that that is real. I mean, I don't, you'd have to be pretty either deliberately obtuse or extremely ignorant to not know that there's racism in America, mm -hmm. right? Or that there's inequality. At the same time, it's another thing to experience it firsthand. Um, and I think that. I think for some people, it, you know, though, though they knew it in the abstract that the medical system is a nightmare if you don't have insurance until they've actually had to live it. People are not very good at learning from others. They kind of need to learn it themselves. And so in that way, I think it's apocalyptic in terms of um, lots of people are having the sort of the abstracts become much more concrete and manifest in their lives. Um, and they're seeing the connection to things that maybe they didn't see before. But from what I've seen from, you know, the the billionaires, um, I, I don't see them having a big change of heart. They're going to suddenly start <laughs> like, yeah, I've got $100 billion. I don't need any more. I'm not going to take any money. I'm going to spread it to my workers. I, that I don't, I'm not seeing that yet. And so I think it's going to take collective action, just like in the progressive era in the New Deal. People have to decide that they want to have a different arrangement. Um, and so I guess that's the next question, and Cleola kind of already led to it. As, as leaders of communities of faith or uh, idea leaders, is there a role for us here in talking about civil change in a church that is honestly a little wary of talking about things that are so concrete as that? I mean, most of us probably are in churches where people have various different policy preferences and party preferences. And so how do we talk about this issue of justice and connect it to real world change um, and still bring people along? Because I, I don't want to leave anybody behind, but I do think that it's imperative that we, we lead on this issue. So thoughts on how do we do that? I, I think it's okay to leave people behind who um, don't want to come along. But before that, there needs to be an alternative offered. So, um, you know, even these, the establishment and people, government leaders are talking about a new normal, and but the choice we're being given is to go back to the way it was. Um, and so the people who, who have had an apocalypse or revelation who 
need to be told that this is an arrangement. This is not concrete. This is not uh, died in black letter law. There, there needs to be an alternative to what and how we could be together, which, you know, is should be the voice of the church to talk about that and, the, and faith leaders to say, no, there, there is another, uh, another way. Um, you know, the prophet Bob Dylan said, what, if you're, if you're not, the, you know, part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And I always understood Jesus to say, every single person is welcome to go this way because we're going this way. You don't have to go, but we are going this way. Um, and there was a, so there's a choice. I don't know if, if average Joe or Jane American feels they have really have a choice in these sorts of things. The other other thing I was thinking about, and I don't know if I said this to you guys last month, but when you talk about the essential workers and the, the inequalities, you know, those are people who are looking for exodus from where they are. You know, they want to need to get out of that oppressive system into a new into the promised land or opportunity or privileges that everybody in this conference has. Um, but our types are living in a time of exile. So they do want to go back to Jerusalem. They do want to go back to where it was. They want to pick up where they left off. And we have to sort of get that close enough that they might adhere to each other or, or recognize each other and then form a new thing. Because right now, it's this exile and exodus and, you know, never the twain shall meet. It, we need to figure out a way to communicate that we're all, all together can go to this land. Otherwise, none of us are. And we'll all be like Moses standing at the edge, being told what we're missing. And then, so, so that, and that's a hard thing to do. How are you going to do that? How are you going to tell a dyed in a wool 72-year-old Episcopalian that they can't be in exile to go back. They need to go and need to go on in Exodus. They that they are one and the same as the hidden immigrants up in around your parish, John, or or uh, or here in Columbus. We need a vocabulary and a voice to, to say those things. Otherwise, we'll keep handing out blankets and soup cans and pat ourselves on the shoulder and. And look how look what's that done. What has that done for us? Not not too much. Tom, will you repeat your question? Well, I was just asking as as leaders of faith communities, how do we communicate this this necessary imperative to change in a way that brings as many people along as possible, right? Because I, Jesus has things that he says are important that we need to do, but Jesus doesn't have particular policies to enact in a civil society um, and so there's there is for us there's a, a role to point out the things that are important and the things that fail to meet Jesus's standards but I I, I think that there when if we get into the part where we're promoting a particular partisan policy it can be problematic for us yeah I think when there are I mean I have my preferences but yeah, yeah. We have a uh, in what I have done so far around these kinds of issues in my congregation, and I'm very fortunate in that 
my the vestry at St. Luke's Squim uh, and a, a large number of the people are are all on the same page. I don't want to say about partisan politics, but about what our Christian vocation is and what our mission is is. Um, so I get a lot of backing for what we do, and what we do is kind of a scattershot method where in any particular moment we are trying to articulate and live out what we see that mission as being and we renew that mission verbally among ourselves uh, so that we all can have kind of a plumb line for what it is. We haven't had, in, in our community, here in SQUIM, we're known for outreach, we're known for mission, uh, people look to us for it, so we're well placed in that way. We haven't done the next step of social action around issues like this, and I'm not exactly sure how that would look if we were to start. This is a largely retired community, so the energy towards social action is probably limited too. Um, although it's very, they're very energetic and very energetic in outreach. So maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's the puzzle to me. And I think the first step for me is start myself at doing it myself and letting people see me do it and talking about doing it and hope I keep the job <laughs> while I'm doing it. You know, I think we need to also look at the fact that we are split because all of us depend on our paycheck from the church, or I do. Well, and there it is. If there, I really there make there, this- There's, the, there's a crux right there. And I think for me, that means I'm a step or two out ahead of them. I'm not where I would be. The funny thing about my congregation is they see, I think many people there see me as, uh, see me as socially active and socially liberal. And I am so way less liberal than I would be if I just were to cut loose. But I try to stay a step or two ahead of where they are and articulate where they might be headed, at least to the next curve in the road, if not their their final destination. And it seems like then they can see where to go next. Um, even while we talk about the kingdom of God, where are we going to go next with that? Um, so that there isn't a huge divide between my vision and theirs. I feel like I articulate the outer edge of where they are rather than where I would really go. Well, a thought I've had, and I know I'm not the only person I've ever had this thought, and I read something about it recently, is, you know, fundamental to the idea of American identity is this idea of freedom. Now, we all know that that freedom has not been applied equally. Um, but it's sort of the founding idea uh, behind our society, right? But from the very beginning, I think, um, we have had people who felt that the freedom the American idea gives them is a freedom to do 
whatever they want, um, right? Uh, up to the point where someone will stop them, I suppose. Um, and that could be the freedom to own other people or the freedom to denigrate people who have a different national origin or people of a different gender or, or you know, whatever, right? Or freedom to go get a haircut, um, you know, when it, the good sense would tell you just to stay home. Um, but at the same time, there's a countervailing idea that, that the freedom that we're offered is actually more in line with the freedom that Jesus offers, which is a freedom from, right? We should we are offered through Christ like a freedom from fear. We don't have to be afraid of the things that we're afraid of, like death, because Jesus has taken away the power of those things so that we are free from those things in order that we might boldly, courageously go out and be the agents of love we were created to be. Um, and it seems to me that there's a there's a tension there, right? That there's a communitarian freedom from that we are probably immersed in, um, that our church stands for. But there's been a countervailing force that's freedom too, which if you ask me is um, kind of evil. Chaos. <laughs> uh, right, that's chaotic, right? That's like that's like an adolescent fantasy of libertarianism where I can do whatever I want until somebody stops me, right? That's, that's not how actual people can work together and accomplish anything. Um, that's lawless anarchy. And, and I don't think you can build a satisfying society on lawless anarchy. And so Jesus offers us a really different idea of interdependence that this pandemic has really shown pretty clearly the number of people who live in not very good conditions that we are absolutely dependent upon for our, my, privileged, easy life. And so that was just an, something that's kind of been boiling up, you know, that, that I've been seeing and thinking about. Um, and how do I communicate that? That the goal of Jesus is not you don't have to follow any rules, do whatever you want. It's it's you're not a you know you're not subject to the law anymore. But that doesn't mean that the law was a bad idea. It just means it has to come from within you. It's not something we're gonna that's uh, gonna be an external force acting on you. If if you want to choose the way of love, you've got to do that yourself. No one's gonna make you. That was like eighteen different thoughts. Sorry. <laughs> right. One of the sad things about watching the people with the guns at the state houses is uh, they they don't they don't they're not they're unaware that they have choices to do something else. They don't have their all they know is I'm supposed to do this. This job is my identity. This whatever is my my thing, and they don't have the skills. Perhaps I mean they're not stupid. They're not dumb. They're just. Are, have not been given the choice that you can actually think of the other. You can actually, see, you know, think differently than than what your what your milieu is or your worldview. You can expand that to include others rather than the narrowness of of what you've always been what you've always been taught. Um, and I want to I want to defend anarchy. I love the word anarchy, and anarchy does not mean chaos. They are two different things. Anarchy is a state uh, of being without uh, governmental authorities, or it's a freely constituted, I mean, it's almost utopia. It's not chaos. Chaos is something completely different. In um, reality, it's always chaos. Well, well I, I think it's been taught, we've been taught that. Again, you know, anarchists are the ones who want to get rid of the government, but it's, it's not chaos. Chaos. Yeah, Chaos because is, always want government to impose their own libertarian order. Chaos is evil. <laughs> anarchy is not. Chaos is evil. Anarchy is not. 
Well, I, I so I want to go back to something you said, Charles, because I want to push on it a little bit, if you okay. will forgive me. When you said that about people who are demonstrating at the uh, state house, yeah, their guns, yeah. and said they aren't aware of uh, another way to live. I want to push on that because I want to say the road to hopelessness is trying to live in their head. We don't know what they're aware of. We can't generalize what all of them think. They don't all think one thing. One of our first jobs as Christians is to account for their dignity and respect it. In, and I don't, I don't think that the tactic of deciding what they believe and know really leads us in, towards that. I really think that they need to. But I can read their signs and I can listen to their leaders, and you can get, you can glean what what it is. You can look at sociological. I'm saying that's not a. I don't think that's a helpful. Okay. I I think, uh, in fact, it disables any ability to meet together and really interact. Yeah. And every time I've ever experienced somebody knew what I thought and wanted me to do something differently because they knew what I thought, it did not lead to dialogue and change. Okay. Amy, oh, is, Amy, what are you doing? You're, you're not having a seizure. I have three something. thoughts that I want to get out. Three, All right, go. Before we three. get into this. So the first is, you all know I work in Christian formation, so of course I have a Christian formation edge to this. These three are not necessarily completely connected, but they're not disconnected either from what we've been talking about or even from each other. So the first thought is if somebody's looking for something to do, a way to help people open their eyes through this, a great book to read and do a book study on and educate yourself on this is called $2 a Day. living on almost nothing in America. And it talks about the welfare reform under uh, Bill Clinton and the way that cash was taken out of the American workers' hands so that people are dependent in a whole bunch of different ways, the ways that on-demand working works so that people are not necessarily guaranteed 40 hours. They don't have to be scheduled a certain number of hours for certain times and the difficulties that puts families in specifically and then connected to that thought about the families i will say that in the state of texas they opened up a whole bunch the first phase of reopening even though we had not had two weeks without an increase in covid cases so we are opening way too soon in my opinion but in the first wave of opening they opened a whole bunch of jobs that were minimum wage jobs, but they did not open childcare or the school system. Right. Yeah, so right. for families with children, the children are the losers in that system. They get left with somebody they don't know, less than ideal circumstances. I mean, a whole bunch of ways. The children are the ones paying the price for their minimum wage parents who have to, who have to go back to work because if their job is open and they do not go, they can no longer collect unemployment benefits. Yeah. Um, so that was very troublesome here. So that was the second thought. And then the third thought is uh, piggyback onto what Charles said. 
about how America has gotten caught with their pants down every single big disaster, every single big thing that happens to us. And as a society, we come up with something to solve it, the New Deal, um, the GI Bill. We have ways that we have figured out how to help people in these situations. And then over the next 25 to 50 years, all of those ways erode away. So I think our job as leaders in our communities are to, number one, yes, definitely cheerlead and vote for those things that are going to help provide that safety net and undergird the least, the lost, and the last in our communities, but then also long-term work for those to not erode. Hopefully we will have some sort of more enhanced safety net in six months than what we do right now. And whatever that is, maybe we can push it a little bit further. Maybe we can help it not erode over time. Those are very simple ways where if we just stay aware and stay in the conversation, we have a chance to actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Those are good thoughts, Amy. You always. <laughs> you know, I, I think that. Resource. I'm so impressed with you for that. I do think that one of our calls, um, and I think if the, if the Episcopal Church is to continue to be uh, a meaningful organization in our society, is is that we got to do a much better job of talking about Jesus than than about religion, about right? That about our our call is to continuously have before people the vision of life that Jesus offers, and and an appreciation that their role as Christians is to make that as real as possible and not to have the most precious liturgy that you can come up with. And so on one hand, you know, this whole current crisis where for the most part we're not in our church buildings um, could be a hopeful start to talking about that. Um, But a lot of the conversation, especially amongst, I have to be honest, clergy, is mourning their starring role every Sunday morning. Um, and uh, and I think that that's something we really need to figure out a way to get beyond. Um, so as a church, as we organize ourselves, I think when we're talking about calling leaders, um, we, we need to be mindful of that and what it is people are actually being expected to lead. Um, are they being called to lead the Jesus's movement? Are they being called to lead worship. Um, and I think we need to be a little clearer about that. Well, I think worship is so important that they're looking for that familiar place that they've always sort of been bred into again, you know. Um, so, you know, my liturgy sometimes is like a calling an audible in the 50 yard line where it would drive other clergy who are visiting up, up the wall. Um, but by the same token, they weren't down talking about police violence on unarmed citizens, and I was. So, you know, there's got to be permission to do both or figure out how, how to do both. Um, so what was I going to say? It was something John said that I was going to say. Well, make it quick because we're running out of life. Um, so can, can I read a quick poem as my parting thought? Yes, you can read a quick poem as your parting thought. Out loud to you yes. guys? Okay. Yeah. 
That's fine. Um, <laughs> I can edit it out later. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been trying to get the smoke machine going for the, while we're talking, and I can't, so you may well edit out. This is called Ice Dam. It was in the winter 2020 uh, volume, and here it goes. It's by Marianne Corbett, and it says, The airiness of snow's accumulation and powdery upheapings on the roof swans down swaddled us through a muffled winter. Only now, in the first whispers of March, does the truth dribble down walls on the upstairs porch with the full weight of what was always water, fluid as mood and ponderous as grief, an oozing, seeping, weepy accusation. Now the recriminations, now we search for scapegoats, insulation, fan, blocked gutter, but find there is no bargain rate salvation. This costs. Somebody has to risk his life. The checkbook bleeds again, abashed and bitter. We beat our breasts for what was left undone. That that isn't a sign of what was coming. I don't know what what was. So, Ice Dam by Marianne Corbett. All right. Any other final thoughts? Thank I you. I enjoyed our conversation. Conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, um, say who you are and uh, anything about yourself you'd like to share. So we'll start with Amy. I am Amy Haney. I'm the Associate Rector at Trinity Episcopal Church in Fort Worth, Texas. All right. And Charles? Charles Wilson. I am an Episcopal priest at large in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you. And Clayola? I'm Clayola Jaton. I'm the Rector of St. Luke's in Squim, Washington. And I'm John White, Rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Camillus, New York. Thank you all, and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. This has been a production of the Episcopal Cafe.